0: If you would turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 6, and then back up just a few verses into chapter 5, verse 11. Hebrews chapter 6, that's where we're going to be, but back up to Matthew chapter 5, verse 11 for just a few moments. You know, there are times when, as a preacher, the Lord puts a fire in your bones to preach. The last two Sundays in particular, the Lord has put a fire in my bones to preach. Other times, times like this morning, he arrests and sedates your heart. Not in a bad way, but in a contemplative stop and take a look at what you're talking about for your own life, for the life of those who are listening, for the lives of those who are listening, and we stop and we ask questions. And I want to do that with you this morning, but beginning in verse 11 of chapter 5, the book of Hebrews says this, About this we have much to say concerning Jesus Christ and his Melchizedekian priesthood. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do, if God permits. Receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. And then in verse 9 of Hebrews 6, which is what we're going to talk about next week, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. He moves to affirmation and to encouragement. But before we get there, We look at verse 11 of chapter 5 through chapter 6, verse 8, and it is a a paragraph that is focusing in on concern for their spiritual well-being, rebuke, challenge, grow up, grow up into the maturity of Christ. Don't stop growing and warning. Warning, don't just sample Jesus. Don't just fake it and play the game on the outside. Because don't you know you are literally playing with fire? And then there's an illustration about two types of soil. One that receives the blessing of God, the grace of God, and it brings forth a bountiful harvest and therefore proves that soil is a soil of life. And then there's the other soil that receives the same grace and blessing, and yet it produces death. Thorns and thistles, and the image of the thorn in the Bible is the image of the curse, that which brings death. Even when Jesus wore the crown of thorns, don't miss out on the biblical theology, the symbology that Jesus, by donning the thorns, is donning death. He is taking on the curse as he goes to the cross. The warning is, don't be like the Israelites, which is found in chapter 3 of Hebrews, where the Israelites who hardened their hearts, they saw the works of God for 40 years in chapter 3, verse 9. They saw all the wonders of God, but they rebelled, sinned, did not believe, and then chapter 4, did not enter the rest of God, Canaan, which is symbolic of heaven. What kept them out of Canaan, what kept them out of the place of blessing, was their unbelief. Likewise, the writer in chapter chapter 6 is encouraging us to think about the life we live. Now, this is where I think we need to stop and ask a couple of questions. Have you, have we, grown dull of hearing? Have we stopped pursuing and hungering for Christ? Are we sitting on the fringe and enjoying the blessings of other people's faith, but ourselves never actually believing and walking? Even if you are a believer, it is. Incredible how easy it is to be distracted by life. And uh, sometimes I think that as I'm preaching these things, and even in my own life, how quickly it is to go through verses, to accumulate knowledge and information, but never actually stop because I'm too busy, too busy to stop and ask the questions, where am I? What type of soil am I? Has the soil of my heart become hardened so that when the rain of the blessing and the grace of God falls, it just washes off, but never actually is absorbed down into my heart? Busyness is a scourge. It's actually been said that busy stands for being under Satan's yoke. Busy. Yes, one of the hallmarks. How was your week? Sometimes we work at where with pride, man. Busy. There's an anecdote, and it's a fictional anecdote, and yet nonetheless powerful. And it says Satan called a worldwide convention. Some of you maybe have heard this before. Similar to C.S. Lewis's Screw Tape letters, but which I recommend highly as a reading. But it's not that. Satan called a worldwide convention, and in his opening address to his evil angels, he said, "We can't keep the Christians from going to church." We can't keep them from reading their Bibles and knowing the truth. We can't even keep them from forming an intimate, abiding relationship experience in Christ. And if they gain that connection with Jesus, our power over them is broken. So let them go to their churches. Let them have their conservative lifestyles, but steal their time so they can't gain that relationship with Jesus Christ. This is what I want you to do, angels. Distract them from gaining hold of their Savior and maintaining that vital connection throughout their day. How shall we do this? shouted his angels. Keep them busy in non-essentials of life and invent innumerable schemes to occupy their minds, he answered. Tempt them to spend, 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 and borrow, borrow, borrow. Persuade the wives to go to work for long hours and the husbands to work six to seven days a week, ten to twelve hours a day, so they can afford their empty lifestyles. Keep them from spending time with their children, and as their family fragments, soon their home will offer no escape from the pressures of work. Overstimulate their minds so that they cannot hear that still small voice entice them to play the radio cd or dvd player whenever they drive to keep the tv the phones the pcs computers and devices going constantly in their homes and see to it that every store and restaurant in the world plays music that draws their heart away from me and this will jam their minds and break that union with christ Fill the coffee table with magazines and newspapers. Pound their minds with news 24 hours a day. Invade their driving moments with billboards and public news radio. And flood their mailboxes with junk mail, mail, order catalogs, sweepstakes, and every kind of newsletter and promotional offering free products, services, and false hopes. Keep skinny, beautiful models on the magazines so the husbands will believe that external beauty is what's important. They'll become dissatisfied with their wives. Ha! That will fragment those families quickly. Even in their recreation, let them be excessive. Have them return from their recreation and vacations exhausted, disquieted, and unprepared for the coming week. Don't let them go out in nature and reflect on God's wonders. Send them to amusement parks, sporting events, concerts, and movies instead. Keep them busy, busy, busy. And when they meet for spiritual fellowship, Involve them in gossip and small talk so that they leave with troubled consciences and unsettled emotion. Go ahead. Let them be involved in soul winning but crowd their lives with so many good causes that they know have no time to seek the power from Christ. Soon they'll be working in their own strength, sacrificing their health and family for the good of the cause. It will work. It will work. It was quite a convention. And the evil angels went eagerly to their assignments, causing Christians everywhere to get busy, 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 and rush here and there. You know, it wouldn't be such a pointed anecdote if it wasn't so true. Now, don't get caught up in the things that he's... We're not saying that the individual items are in themselves evil, I think many of us have been to Disney World, or we have TVs or smartphones, and I have my devices, right? We all have them, but here's the thing is that there are so many things competing for our lives that we go from one thing to the next. The sermon becomes another element of my week. My Bible reading just becomes a checklist to do, and I never stop long enough to say, where am I with Jesus Christ? And our families and our children learn that pace of life, they find that religion is just simply an empty list of to dos instead of something that drives deep into their hearts an abiding relationship with Christ that actually gives them power to face the temptations of the world, to stand firm against the evil thoughts that invade our dreams. And so we are lulled oftentimes. Maybe you've grown up in church. You're lulled into the, I've got the Christian life together and you think you're okay. But in fact, you're staring eternal hell in the face. This is what Hebrews 6 is all about. Confronting whether or not you actually are And if you are truly a believer, are you constantly tilling up the soil and allowing the rain of God, the blessings of God, to sink into your life and to bear fruit unto His glory? Don't be like the Israelites. The Israelites who wandered the wilderness, who continued to defy God, who received the blessings of God, and yet, we're too busy about their own priorities to actually stop and to even check their own hearts. When we think about the Israelites, how many times the Lord, the Lord God, said, I'm going to destroy these people. And yet he didn't because of the work of Moses. And some of you, I'm on tangent for just a moment. Some of you were here Wednesday night gathering. And uh, Wednesday night gathering, join us, 645 in the chapel. We talk about our missionaries, what they're doing. We pray together. Then we have teaching from the Word of God. And this past Wednesday, I taught through uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And as we went through Numbers, I raised the question, as God seems to be like, destroy the people. And then Moses says, no, don't destroy the people. And God changes his mind. And the question is, are we facing a capricious God who changes his mind constantly? And often when people are reading through the Bible throughout a year, when they get to Numbers and Deuteronomy, those are the questions that they ask. And I said I would answer it Wednesday night, and I didn't. So now I'm going to come back and answer it right now, because it also plays in to where we're going this morning. In the Old Testament, when Israel sinned, and then God said, I'm going to destroy them. And then Moses said, no, don't destroy them. He was an intercessor, a mediator. And how do we understand God's seeming capriciousness or unpredictability in his mind-changing wrath? Okay, I won't. Wrath? Okay, I won't. Here is how we understand that in the Old Testament. Number one, In God's holiness, he must deal with sin. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 6 and down into the Old Testament, God is holy and he must deal with sin. But number two, God in his mercy provides a way for his wrath to be diverted through the work of an intercessor. God in his mercy provides for His wrath to be diverted by the work of an intercessor. God in his sovereignty, before they even went into the wilderness, raised up Moses because he knew that his holiness would be provoked by the Israelites. So in his sovereignty, he raised up Moses to be that intercessor so that when they sinned and his holiness demanded judgment, there was an intercessor in place ready to stand on behalf of the people and divert the wrath of God. Okay, it's not God changing his mind. God in his sovereignty, working it all out. We also see number four, God was setting a precedent, a type of intercessor for how sin must be deal with, dealt with. And then we see in Hebrews, the argument is that Jesus is that superior intercessor who finally and completely diverts the wrath of God through his work on the cross. All right, we see Old Testament, To Christ, now to the book of Hebrews. He is that superior intercessor. On the cross, Jesus eternally diverts the flood of God's wrath for all those who repent and believe. Repent means to confess they are sinners and in need of God's mercy. Believe that from their heart that Jesus alone is God, that he is their only hope of salvation. All right, so that's God's work in the Old Testament. It's God's work in the New Testament. We're not talking two different gods, two different purposes, a capricious, wrathful God and a just, merciful God. No, the same God working the same way. And if God has given you the grace to be able to hear that truth and hear that truth this morning, the question that I ask, that the book of Hebrews continually asks is, have you believed in that intercessor? Intercessor. Or have you grown dull of hearing? Are you too busy to see the glories and the majesties of Christ? Hebrews is written that you might have joy and confidence in who Christ is and what he has eternally completed on your behalf. And brothers and sisters, I preach, not in angry condemnation, but in urgency that you believe Because I why am I hitting this point so hard? You're like, Pastor, I I know I'm a believer. You're preaching for me to get saved again? No, I've just been in ministry long enough and I've seen in this area and in this demographic specifically in South Central Virginia with a major Christian university on our doorstep, there are many people who think they're Christians because they were born into a Christian home. They look the part on the outside, but they have never believed and they are walking towards hell thinking that they are believers when they have never trusted in Jesus Christ. And I'm tired and grieving of seeing that happen. So I am warning you, because if you do not have an intercessor and you haven't trusted in that intercessor, you have no one to divert your wrath or the wrath of God, forgive me. Your works are not good enough to divert his wrath. Your holiness is not rich enough to divert his wrath. That is why Jesus died on the cross, to divert the wrath so that you can have joy Warnings are graces of God and the love of God that you would come to salvation and not spend eternity in hell. That's what the warnings of God are. Love letters of grace to you. Hebrews is written out of supreme concern for your eternal well-being. That Jesus is so precious and the rejection of Christ so heinous the Hebrews gives you warning after warning that you not be led astray, dulled and hardened into a slow rejection of Christ. Some people reject Christ outright. Many people reject Christ slowly. They reject Him slowly with their choices, their lusts, their lifestyles. Their heart is hardened away from God. And though they approve of Christianity from a distance, don't just get too serious on me. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 4 warns and says, be careful that you have tasted the heavenly gifts shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the word of God, tasted the powers of the age to come. You've experienced the warmth of the blessings of God. You've shared in the blessings of the Holy Spirit. We just sang a wonderful song about that one day when Jesus Christ will come back victorious and maybe you get caught up in the emotion of it all and you're like, wow, this is awesome, Great that you have an emotional experience, but can you say that you've trusted in Christ? Is He alone your Savior? Because if not, you will not be standing at that throne singing, Holy, Holy, Holy. You will be in hell in terror under the wrath of God, singing, Oh, not singing, crying. My punishment is just. Be careful of outraging the spirit of grace. I don't know. Maybe the Holy Spirit's giving me fire in my bones after all. I don't know. <laughs> you're like, man, if this is you sedate, what is it when you're really fired up? I, I don't know. I'm actually really deviating from my notes, but that's okay. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 through 8, we have a lot of warning. A lot of warning. And believers, this is not a warning for just the unbeliever. The warning is part of God's grace to keep you also on the path of obedience. That we do stop and say, this is warning the unbeliever. And this is how I've taken it. Those who are playing the game, well, I know, I know I have followed Jesus. I know who I am in Christ. But, Lord, help me not to treat Christ so plainly, so commonly, that I do not give him the reverence that he is due. That I do not show him in my actions and words in life. Now, Hebrews chapter 6, I have argued that That these are people who are close. They're almost Christians. They've enjoyed the warmth. These are not believers who can lose their salvation. Now, I want to briefly talk about three alternate theories or the three prevailing theories of how to interpret Hebrews 6. And one of them is this, that he is writing to genuine believers And he's speaking to those who have tasted. Tasting is not just in part, but rather in whole. That to share in the Holy Spirit means that you are a believer. And these are people who have rejected Christ. And these are believers who can lose their salvation. That is a very, very popular theory. Number two, uh, that all of these warnings are just hypothetical. That, That these warnings, you can't really fall away and re-crucify Christ, but the warning is part of God's sovereign means to persevere Christians to the end. So it's hypothetical. You can't lose it, you can't fall away, but it's part of God's sovereign means to keep you on the path of obedience. Maybe. Um, I, I would argue and say that th- this is the position I've been espousing, that Hebrews chapter 3 uh, lays out the argument of Israelites, right, who are in the, pro, in, the, in the covenant people of God. They've been elected into God's covenant people, not elected into salvation. That, that we understand in the New Testament specifically, and we get glimpses of it in the Old Testament, God sovereignly electing people into salvation. But in Deuteronomy 7, God brings them into the community of God, but they haven't been saved yet. You've been elected to have blessings, But just because you were part of the nation of Israel didn't mean that you were saved. And there were many who were not. Okay. In the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, you have been brought into some measure into the community of God. And he's writing to believers, because you know what? I'm saying, brothers and sisters, I don't know your heart. I'm speaking to you as if you are my brothers and sisters, fully knowing that some of you are actually not. You look like it, you sound like it, But your heart is not. And I think that's what he's doing here. These are professing believers, some who truly are, and some who are almost. They're part of the community. They're part of the enjoyment of the blessings, but they themselves have never trusted in Christ. So I think that he is accomplishing two things. He's warning the believers to persevere us. But I also think that he is specifically warning those who have come so close and are almost or just faking it. I believe this is most internally consistent with the book of Hebrews and externally consistent with the New Testament. If you say that these are genuine believers who can lose their salvation, you run into all types of theological consistency problems with the greater New Testament corpus. Where Paul writes extravagantly about once Jesus Christ has saved you, there ain't nothing that can take you from the love of God. And we need to stand very firmly on that. And we interpret the obscure or even the debated portions of one text by bringing in the immediate context, the book of Hebrews, but then also we interpret it in the larger context of the Bible. You always have to do that. Now, he reinforces his warnings with the illustration. I want to park on this illustration for just a moment. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 7 through 8. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. We have two soils. Both receive blessing. One brings forth life, The other one brings forth death. So one of the conclusions we make by this illustration is that fruit shows true life. Your fruit does not save you, but the fruit of your life shows that life actually exists. Now Jesus said that, didn't he? In John chapter 15, abide in me, and if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will bear much fruit to the glory of God. So when the gospel takes root, there is fruit, right? That rhymes. Poet and didn't know it, right? When the gospel takes root, you bear fruit. I'm I'm not going to copyright that because that's from the Bible, right? It's just the truth. The other thing that Hebrews drives forth in this book is that one of the key fruits of life is continuation. In other words, if you continue in the faith, continuation, faithfulness, is a marker of true saving faith. That's why in Hebrews chapter 2 says that those who, are, uh, who continue are defined as the people of God. And elsewhere in the New Testament, when we have statements like, they went out from us because they were not of us. And this is a warning because sometimes we think, because I prayed a prayer when I was five, that I am OK. do not treat salvation like some magical incantation that once you say it, that you're good. Now, I was saved when I was six, and I know it. I'm not, not downing young salvations. I know I was saved when I was six years old, and I prayed a prayer, but I believed in my heart. It is the belief in the heart, and that belief is attested. Today, not back then. You guys follow me? The evidence of my salvation is not back then, but today. Continuation is one of the key fruits. Now, what about Jesus's illustration of soils? He gives four soils. Yes, he does. In Matthew chapter 13, he describes four soils, but only one of those soils brings life. There's still only two soils, one that brings death, one that brings life. The seed falls along the path, the birds come and devour them. Matthew 13 Some seeds fell on rocky ground. They spring up real quick. They have no root and they wither and die. Once adversity, the sun comes out. Others fall among the thorns, but the cares of the world, the thorns choke them. And the fourth soil, the good soil, actually produces a harvest. So three are dead. One is alive. All received blessing, but only one continued and bore fruit. You know, the New Testament is replete with examples of those who started out well and then fell off the wayside. 1 Timothy 1.19. Himenaeus and Alexander shipwrecked their faith by rejecting the faith. 2 Timothy 2.16. Himenaeus and Philetus have swerved from the truth and their talk spreads like gangrene. So the fruit of their life is in their talk and gossip and division. 2 Timothy 4.10. Demas in love with the present world deserted paul who is love of world third john chapter 1 verse 9 through 10 diotrephes who likes to put himself first and does not acknowledge authority it's about his preeminence and his pride lots of examples of those who started off well but then their fruit of their life produced death what about Saul we're talking about Saul and David. These, this is a great contrast. Saul started off well in the Old Testament, but fell away. He was dead soil. In 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1-2, to 2, we, we find that he was born as, into a family of wealth. That there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. If anyone looked like a king, it was Saul. He looked the part. When he was at battle, he was waiting for Samuel to come and offer sacrifice before the battle. Samuel didn't come, so Saul said, I'll take care of it myself. Samuel then confronts Saul and says, what have you done? Because only the priests are supposed to offer sacrifice. He violated the law of God. And then Saul said, when I saw the people were scattering, and then you did not come, and the Philistines had mustered, I forced myself and offered the burnt offering excuses. Well, the people are leaving. He's afraid. He's fearful of people. And then he says, but then you didn't come, Samuel. It's not my fault. You didn't come on time according to my schedule. And and then the enemy's coming. So the ends justify the means. You can already see the fruit of Saul's life and when confrontation happened, there was no repentance God says in 1 Samuel 15, 10 through 11 that he he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. So Samuel goes to Saul and says, have you done the Lord's command and destroyed the Amalekites? Saul says, blessed be to you the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. I've destroyed the Amalekites. Samuel says, what's this bleeding of sheep in in my ears? And Here's Saul again, confrontation, excuses. Well, they, the people, brought back the sheep from the Amalekites. But they did it to sacrifice to, the God, to God. So, you know, the disobedience is okay because we're going to offer sacrifice instead? And we came to do this to sacrifice to the Lord, your God, Samuel, not, not his God. You can already see him distancing himself. Samuel rebukes Saul. Saul doubles down and says, but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've done it. But you know what he's done? He's obeyed the voice of the Lord according to his own standards. Not according to God's standards. According to his standards. He has disobeyed the voice of the Lord. And then finally he says, okay, the reason I disobeyed is because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. And you know, people fear. Fear of people. It's a big deal. Something we all struggle with. Matter of fact, there's a resource in our resource center. Stop by. It's called When People Are Big and God Is Small. Excellent resource. I encourage everybody to read it. It talks about why we fear people. We fear rejection. We fear exposure. We feel that people will physically hurt me. But how do I overcome fear of people and gain a healthy fear of God? Excellent resource. Pick it up at the resource center he feared people more than he feared god and eventually that fear and that love of this world overcame his love of god and his heart showcased that he, his heart his soil was a soil of death david on the other side he wasn't perfect but he did prove genuine he did prove genuine he believed in god he wasn't he believed in god more than he feared people willing to stand against saul and the people and fight Goliath, he had confidence in God. He constantly inquired of the Lord and sat in his presence. And you know what? When he blew it big with Bathsheba, committed an affair, conspired to murder, you see, when Saul was confronted, excuse, 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 not my fault, not my fault, not my fault, when David was confronted, he immediately says, I have sinned falls on his face, and writes Psalm 51. Not perfect, but a heart submitted, and when the Lord speaks, he was ready to receive. You know, one of the questions that we ask is as we lot through chapter six, and can we stop long enough in the busyness of our schedule to ask and say, which soil am I? Am, am I Saul, making excuses for why and this and that, and that? Are we like David, sensitive to the Holy Spirit's confrontation? Showing us and exposing our hearts. Are we ready to receive and to take the warning because eternity is at stake? Stop playing the game. You've heard me say that now three weeks in a row and I'm going to keep saying it. Stop playing the game. Trust in the intercessor who diverts the wrath of God so that you might enter into his grace and joy. Believer, stop long enough to say, how do I cultivate the soil of my heart afresh? Oh, Holy Spirit, invade, conform, and transform my life and make me more like you. Would you pray with me? Father, Father, Lots of hard truths and hard realities, and yet these warnings are a grace of love from you to us. And really, though we are saying many of the same things that we talked about last week, we we do not move off of this topic lightly, but we ask that you would confront us and show us who you are and how we might follow you. And if you are out here this morning, you do not know where you stand before the Lord. You want to know how you can be saved. You're wondering if, am I saved or am I just playing the game? I'll be up front here. There'll be people down here wanting to talk with you and pray with you. Let us talk with you. Brother and sister, truly in Christ, may we likewise take warning that Jesus is so precious. May we not treat him lightly till the soil of our hearts are fresh to bring glory to him. Oh God, guide us now, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.